for praise. Thank you, Lord, that you call us to be a, a people of praise. And Lord, I pray that you would just settle our hearts now. Thank you for the, the sweet sounds that, that we've heard, and I pray that they were sweet to your ears too, Lord. To you be the glory. To you be the power. I pray, Lord, you would just minister your word to us tonight. Help us to, to walk with you. For you, God, you know best. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good evening, everyone. Yeah. Wow, that was really sweet. Praise the Lord is right. It's all to his glory, isn't it? Family, tonight we are continuing on in 1 Kings chapter 9. Studying verses 10 through 22, and tonight's message is entitled, God Knows Best. I'm so thankful God knows best, aren't you? And we're also going to be jumping into Deuteronomy again. As we did last week, we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 7 for a portion of tonight's message, so we'll, we'll be there in just a few minutes. But uh, last time we looked at the first nine verses in 1 Kings chapter 10, and we observe that God had given Solomon two warnings. Two warnings regarding obedience, personal obedience, family obedience, obedience of the nation. And the warnings that God gave included the consequences if they did not follow the commands of God. And we know that God is serious about his commands. He's very serious. But remember last time, rather than Israel being that witness, and God's desire for, wit for Israel was that they would be a witness of his holiness to the nations surrounding them. But in their disobedience, what happened was God's judgment became the witness for those nations because God judged them. God judged them because of what they didn't do in accordance with his will and with his word. You see, God is so serious about obedience, isn't he? He says what he means, and he means what he says. And sadly, Solomon didn't take God's warnings seriously. And we're going to find, not, we're going to find a bit of this tonight, but I mean throughout, you know, as we study Solomon's life, we're going to see that Solomon, he got himself in, in trouble because he didn't heed God's word and God's warnings. So let's pick up in verse 10 tonight. And this just shares, the Bible shares some of the further activities of Solomon. And it says, and it came to pass at the end of 20 years. Now that's about the midpoint of Solomon's reign. When Solomon had built the, the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, now Hiram, the king of Tyre, had furnished Solomon with cedar trees and fir trees and with gold, according to all his desire. That then King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. So Hiram is this one that we studied previously in 1 Kings chapter 5. And Solomon went to King Hiram, knowing that he was going to be building, Solomon would be building the temple. And he asked Hiram for 
the cedar, the fir trees, the, the things that were necessary in order to build this temple, and also the labor. Hiram had at his disposal many, many laborers, thousands. And in turn, Solomon would, would pay for the labor, and he pr would provide the food for the workers and their families. But what started as construction of the temple, well, we know it didn't end there. It also included following the construction of Solomon's palace and the entire complex, and it went on for 20 years. So as part of these, this extended agreement that Solomon gave Hiram, he provided him 20 cities in the Galilee region. He said, okay, Hiram, you've done all this for me, now I'm going to give you 20 cities. And that's pretty substantial compensation, I would say. Well, let's look at verses 12 and 13. And Hiram came out from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, and they pleased him not. And he said, What cities are these which thou hast given me, my brother? And he called the land of Kabul unto this day. So he went out, he inspected these cities, and Hiram just wasn't pleased. Kabul, he called them Kabul, means good for nothing. These cities are good for nothing. Basically, he's calling Solomon stingy. But Hiram was a little bit more than disappointed. Now, I gave you all the cedars you wanted. I gave you all the fir trees you wanted. I gave you all the laborers you wanted. I provided the gold, and you give me these, these good-for-nothing cities. And verse 14, Hiram sent to the king six score talents of gold. 120 talents of gold. It's about 9,000 pounds. Worth about, in today's dollar, today's market, about $260 million. So, and it's kind of odd here. Even though Hiram despises these cities, Solomon, remember, what, what God gave him, he gave him great wisdom. And he negotiated this deal. This gold is part of it. Hiram wasn't happy with the, with the cities. Well, Hiram, give me, give me all this gold, too, on top of that. And he did. So, this, uh, verse 15 this is the reason of the levy or the labor force which King Solomon raised for to build the house of the Lord in his own house in, in Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. As you might expect with all that Solomon had, he needed places to put all his stuff. Called cities of store here. Storage for food, certainly grains, Horses, chariots by the thousands. And when we were in Israel, we visited one of those cities, the city of Megiddo, and it's a very strategic city. It's located in the Jezreel Valley where the Battle of Armageddon will take place. And we got a photo of, of, uh, of the valley from Megiddo. And you can see it. it that's the, the Valley of Jezreel. It's a battlefield and will be the battlefield of Armageddon when the armies of the world try to conquer Jesus. And guess who wins? <laughs> Jesus wins. But what you can see in the foreground, you see there's some structure there, some stones that actually com comprised borders and, and, and so forth. Where And there were literally thousands at, at Solomon's day, thousands of horses up there in a very strategic place, as you can see, overlooking this valley. And this is where he chose to put many, many of his horses and chariots now, in terms of the labor force, 
It says in verses 18 through, let's read right through 22, and Baalath and Tadmor in the wilderness in the land and all the cities of store that Solomon had and cities for his chariots and cities for his horsemen and that which Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and in Lebanon in all the land of his dominion and all the people that were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which were not of the children of Israel. So he's naming here other na- people of other nations that occupy this land. And he says in verse 21, their children that were left after them in the land, whom the children of Israel were also were not able utterly to destroy upon those that Solomon levied a tribute, or he charged them a tax of the bond service unto this day. But of the children of Israel did Solomon make no bondmen or forced labor, but they were men of war and his servants and his princes and his captains and rulers of his chariots and his horsemen. Now when Israel was given the land, given the land by God, they were instructed by God to destroy the inhabitants, the pagan inhabitants, but they didn't. And what seems okay here really was not. Yes, they they were there. They were paying tax. Oh, that's a good thing. These people that really didn't belong here, well, he put them to work and they're paying a tax. But there's a problem. And God has his reasons for saying what he says. He says here, they were left in the land whom the children of Israel also did not or were not able utterly to destroy upon those that Solomon levy a tributive tax. Now, when he says they, they were not able to utterly destroy, well, listen, family, they chose not to destroy them. And we're going to see when we get to chapter 11 that the fruit of this, these people remaining, was not good. And here's what we're going to find We aren't going to study this today, but I just want to point out some verses to you. 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 4, it says, But King Solomon loved many strange women. He's not talking about odd women. Some may have been, but he's talking about strangers that did not belong in the land. Together with the daughter of Pharaoh, that was his wife, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, you shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wife, wives excuse me, turned away his heart. From what? From who? From the Lord. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wife turned away his heart after or toward other gods and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. God warned and we see what happened as a result of not heeding that warning. So let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're actually going to spend, we're going to study the first five verses there and spend the rest of the evening there because it's a little background to where we're coming from regarding what's, what's taken place in, in 1 Kings, particularly chapter 11 that we just read those verses. Now at this point in time, 
in the book of Deuteronomy. It's before the children of Israel had entered into the promised land. And God, knowing the heart of man, he provided an instruction. And the children of Israel, they're on the east side of the Jordan River, and there's about three million people. Moses is the leader, and he's giving them his final instructions, or let's say his last sermon, because they're, they're about to enter into the promised land, and they're going in without him. Remember, God forbade Moses to enter because he misrepresented God. That's noted in Numbers chapter 20. The people were murmuring, the people were complaining. We need water, or we wish you had sent us back to Egypt, or had we never left Egypt. There was plenty to eat, plenty to drink there. And here we are, we're starving, we're dying of thirst. Give us water. And God, and he's so gracious. He said, Moses, just speak to the rock. I'm going to bring water. Well, Moses was angry. He was angry at the people. So he took his staff and he struck the rock. And he called the people of Israel, God's people, he said, you are rebels. Hinting that God was upset with them. But God wasn't upset with them. He knows human nature, doesn't he? He knows that we have a tendency sometimes to complain. Probably none of you. <laughs> but certainly I do. So he struck the rock. And God, he's so good. He still gave them water. Even though it wasn't accomplished the way God wanted, he wanted to bless the people. He provided. He promised to provide. So he still gave them water. And God said, Moses, now look. You misrepresented my heart to the people. And you're going to see the promised land. I'll enable you to go up to the mountain and overlook it, but you can't go in. So the people are about to enter in. Moses, he's... He's watching. So this, this mighty leader, this wonderful man of God with the heart of a shepherd, he wants to make sure that when they entered into the promised land, they're off to a good start. And he reminds them and reviews with them what God would have them to do. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Girgashites and Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Moses said, listen, when you go in, not if you go in, when you go in, God will deliver before you these seven great nations, all mightier than you are. God said, I'm going to deliver them into your hands. And notice with me in, in verse 2, and this is interesting. When the Lord thy God shall deliver them before you, thou, says to the people, you shall smite them. God will deliver them. That was his promise. And he said, now you've got a part in this too. You are to participate. God says you are to smite them. God promised to do his part, bring them to you, and he says to the people, yes, your part is to utterly destroy them. And when I think about that, isn't that the way with us too? The enemy of our flesh, the temptations of Satan. The Bible tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, 
There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you, you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. In other words, no temptation will ever come your way that the Lord will not provide victory at that time and on that day. But looking back to Deuteronomy 7, God said, I've got a part and you've got a part. We look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. God says, I got a, I've got a part and I'm giving you a part and your part is this. You need to be active participants. You have a role to play too. And that is this, in a time of temptation, when the enemy is looming, when the enemy is lurking about, the Lord will give victory if you choose to participate in what he is going to deliver you from at that moment. He said, listen, there's always a way of escape. Romans 6.11 says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He said, know this. This, this old man, this old nature, this sin nature was crucified with Christ. Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul the Apostle, he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Now the word crucified means to impale in company with. It means that when Jesus died on the cross, he rendered your flesh, he rendered my flesh dead and inactive. What this means is we don't have to get into temptation, give into it. We can say no. We ought to say no. Many people have a difficult time saying no to people. But listen, don't ever be afraid to say no to the enemy. Because if you're a new creation, God has given you several things. He's given you the whole armor of God, and he's given you the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit. Well, we're told what to do with the full armor of God. We're told to take it up. We are to be battle ready. When? Before we engage battle. When does a soldier prepare for battle? When being attacked? No. Here, you're a veteran. When did you go through preparation? Before, right? Before, sure. Not to say, hey, wait a minute while I get ready. Just, just give me a minute, enemy. No, no, no. A soldier is prepared in advance before the battle so that when the battle comes, he's ready. There's training. There's discipline, isn't there? There's boot camp. All designed to prepare. And the same with us. We're to take up the army. We're to be battle ready through what? Prayer? Yes, we need to be prayed up. Through the reading of the word of God, which strengthens us, right? And through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Listen, the enemy's roaming around seeking whom he may devour. He wants to devour you. He wants to devour me. He's looking for a weakness, isn't he? He's looking for a chink in your army. Maybe there's a piece of the armor that you hit, your armor you haven't put on. And guess who's going to find it? The enemy will, for sure. He's trying to find a weak spot. So we must be prepared, knowing that the battle is at hand. And listen, we face a battle every single day, don't we? I mean, the battle lines are drawn in a circle around us almost, it seems, doesn't it? Yeah. So we need to be prepared. We need to be ready. 
So the Lord promises us a way of escape. However, we need to do our part and we need to use it. He promises that that sin, whatever it might be, and it could be anything, it could be anger. We know the things that make us angry, right? Do you ever know when you're about to become angry? Yeah. <laughs> you feel like something starts to boil in you. Well, there's a way to escape that too. Lord, help me with this. Help me. Or maybe a, a bad attitude. And you know when a bad attitude's creeping up, don't you? Man, I, I, I struggle with that. Not knowing, I know it's there. I struggle with putting it down. Why? Because I want to entertain that bad attitude in my flesh. <coughs> Somehow, in some way, it seems satisfying, but it's not. It's harmful. It's harmful to me and harmful to people around me. Those things, we, they, we can't allow them to dominate us anymore. For when Jesus died on the cross, that, that sin and tendency of my old nature, anything that was contrary to Christ, the Bible says it was crucified or impaled along with Jesus. And all that the old nature can do is rise up in temptation against me. But the Lord says, I shall deliver you. You just need to do your part. Reckon the old man dead to sin. And according to Romans 6.13 it says, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. It means I don't have to give in to the enemy. I don't have to get in, give in to temptation or that tendency. I reckon, I agree with God that that's dead because of what Christ did on the cross for me. And I know this to be true. I reckon it to be so. And now, Lord, I yield myself to you to do whatever it is that you desire to do with me and to be who you want me to be. And when we step into that environment where we have that kind of freedom in Christ, knowing that he has delivered me from these things, it is absolutely freeing, isn't it? And we can rejoice in small victories. We ought to. You know, you feel anger coming on or bad attitude, anything it might be. God, please take this from me. Help me. Help me just be right with you right now so I can be right with everybody else around. And then when God delivers you from that, what happens is you say, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that victory. Praise you for it. And that's freedom. And it becomes like a partnership with Jesus of sorts, doesn't it? He says, I'm going to deliver you. Will you. If you give it to me, he gives it to us. And oh, how beautiful that is. And sometimes people say, I just can't seem to get over this, whatever it is. Where is the Lord? Well, the answer for the believer is the Lord's done his part. And it's up to me as a believer to resist the enemy. Why? Because Jesus has already smitten him. He has delivered the enemy into my hands. <clears throat> Excuse me, and now I'm to do my part in yield, yielding myself to God and to be used as an instrument of righteousness. Notice me with me in verse 2. It says, Yes, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. And then he says, Make no covenant with them, no show, nor show mercy unto them. In other words, no deal-making with the enemy. 
or with temptation. Oh, this is, this is the last time, and then, then I'll be done. Then I'll repent. No, no, no. God says no deals, no bargains. Be merciless when it comes to sin. And you and I, we're to deal mercilessly with sin and live, live lives as if sin has been crushed, just like the head of Satan when Jesus died on the cross. And I would suggest that God takes sin very, very seriously. Seriously enough to send his son to the cross to die for it. So we need to deal with it seriously as well. Swiftly and completely through repentance. Acts 8.22 says, Repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray God if perhaps even the thoughts of thine heart may be forgiven thee. Even the thoughts, even the heart, the things that go on in here that we know aren't right. God, cleanse my mind. Purify my heart. God says, I've made a way of escape. And you know, when I think about that, Jesus is our way of escape, isn't he? Just bring it to him. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now Moses goes on to say in verses 3 and 4, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me that they may serve other gods, so will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. God's saying, listen, if, if you go into that land and you don't do what I've asked you to do, there's going to be mixed marriages and they're going to be a disaster. How so? They'll pull your sons and daughters away from the Lord. And God states it very clearly here and very completely. He says, don't do it. Don't intermingle with those who don't know the Lord because this intermingling, he's warning his people, will lead to entangling and will lead your son or your daughter away from following me. And you know, we've all heard the arguments, haven't we? Oh, I know that he'll get saved. God is using me to bring him or her to salvation. I'll marry him or I'll marry her and, and I'll change him. That's dangerous. It's difficult. Or you might hear, well, he's so wonderful. He said he'd come to church with me someday. And sometimes that someday never comes. Or we're not really serious. And let's face it, intentions may not be to marry initially, but something happens unintentionally it limits the ability to see clearly. That's the intermingling, and God says it's going to lead to entangling. And what happens when people enter into an ungodly relationship, they invite heartache and maybe even heartbreak through marriage. And I know God can do miracles, you know. <laughs> I've seen it. When Jackie and I got married, Neither of us really, we didn't know the Lord. We weren't born again. However, my bride came to Christ three years before I did. And three years seemed really long at the time, not so much for me, but it did for Jackie. And for some, three years seems like a little compared to their 20, 25 years, whatever it might be. But I've also seen God's hand. I mean, 
There's a, there's a couple that used to fellowship here where she had been praying for her husband for 25 years. And then one day, he came to Christ. It was glorious. And God is able to do those things. And in 1 Peter chapter 3 gives the, gives the spouse the guidelines, you know, that they may be won over without a word. I mean, because we can't force anybody to come to Christ. But I like to say it's a good thing for us to love them to Jesus, right? God can do it, but he warns us that there could be, could be difficulties. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? So we see in this Old Testament prohibition here where God so clearly explains why this is so. And then we, we see the New Testament prohibition against marrying an unbeliever. And God's greatest concern here, we need to hear his heart, the greatest concern is that the unbeliever will turn the believer away from the Lord. That's hard. I've witnessed that. Over the years, I've seen it happen. Many don't want to hear it. So we have to be so careful, so incredibly careful, and encourage those in your life to be so careful in entering into a relationship with another that doesn't have a relationship with God because that marriage brings it into a covenant relationship with God that's incomplete. And unless the Lord's will is sought and established, either way, either through the pursuing of the relationship or trust the Lord to end it, and apart from seeking the Lord, it's going to have difficult consequences. And I also know of people that thought they married a godly spouse only to find that the godliness was a charade and that the person turned out to be kind of a, a beast. And God knows. God knows that person that turned out to be a spousal beast. He knows who he is or who she is and knows what and they're thinking and how they're behaving and he knows what's best. In that situation, what do you do? You, you pray. You pray and pray and pray. And ask God, number one, for that person to be, to have Christ revealed to that person, they would get saved. Because Amos 3.3 says, can two walk together unless they be agreed? The scriptures are clear. God gave the warnings. But Israel didn't heed the warnings that God gave. He said, stay away from those compromised relationships. And in talking about these strangers or pagan people, Moses goes on in verse 5, and here's what he says. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves and burn their graven images with fire. You know, and, you know, as I hear these words of Moses, can't you hear his heart? I can because I know it's the heart of God. He's pleading with the people. And they should know this. It, it isn't the first time that they've heard it. In the book of Exodus chapter 23, verse 24, Thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works, but thou shalt utterly overthrow them and quite break down their images. 
And in Exodus 34, 12, it says, Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, whether thou goest, lest it be a snare in the midst of thee. But you shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. God is serious. And he's repeated this warning over and over again because he knows that the people have a tendency to forget and follow after their ways rather than God's ways. Moses provides us warning. He says, understand these things are important. He said, you're not to submit to the attack of the enemy. Be strong, smite him, stand against them because God will deliver them into your hand to finish off the work. And be careful, he's saying, that you don't get involved in marriages that will stand between your relationship with God. And really, family, that's how we need to look at it. And then God says, watch out for images. Yikes. If there are strange images, and we see this in verse 5, God says, destroy them. Don't give them any place. And I can't help but think, and I'm sure your minds are starting to drift in this direction too, of the screens that we view. God says, destroy those images. Don't look upon them. Why? Because they're a trap. They're a snare, and God provided a warning. And I'd suggest that we have a major problem in society today. Major problem. That's polluting minds, polluting families, polluting our land. I read an article today that was published in April of 2021 by an organization called Human Life International. And they say they're, they're all about empowering you to build a pro-life world. So this is good. And they cited these statistics. And they're really alarming. They said there's an organization called Bark a watchdog group founded to help kids stay safe on the internet. They started, excuse me, stated in a January 2021 article that there are currently, and this is at that time, at least, and this is staggering to me, four and a half million pornographic websites. Four and a half million. They also claim that 70.7% of Tweens and 84% of teens encountered nudity or content of a sexual nature online. In February of 2021, two pornography sites placed in the top 10 internet sites accessed around the world. And there's a lot of internet sites. A third, they named a website called Pornhub, ranked at 13. According to Fight the New Drug, a website created to help people see the dangers of pornography, Pornhub record, recorded that users watched 5.8 billion hours of pornography in 2019. It's, it's mind-blowing. They had more than 42 billion site visits in 2019. Every minute, almost 220,000 views were added to Pornhub videos in 2019. That's 13,200,000 video views every hour, 
more than 316 million videos every day. Fight the New Drug also found that every minute, 11,082 hours of pornography are being watched. That's, of course, throughout the world. This equates to 16 million hours of pornographic videos watched every single day. That's a lot, isn't it? In 2020, Pornhub reported a 24% increase in traffic, likely a result of people spending more time at home because of the pandemic. And while it's predominantly male, 70% females watch pornography as well, 30%. And it's not difficult to see how easily accessible pornography is for children and teens. If kids don't go looking for it, it often comes to them. Internet pop-ups, spam emails are two ways that unsuspecting kids can stumble upon pornographic images. And then there's photos that are sent by text, social media, freely shared among those that receive them, and then, of course, what happens? It multiplies exponentially. Kids showing kids their smartphones with stuff on it that doesn't belong. It affects children of all ages. U.S. statistics show that the average age of a child's first exposure to pornography is before the age of 11. Of people younger than 18, children under the age of 10, this, is, this isn't unbelievable. Children under the age of 10 account for 22% of those watching online pornography. According to the 2020 research by the British Board of Film Classification, 51% of 11 to 13-year-olds in the UK have been exposed to pornography. 66% of 14 to 15-year-olds and 79% of 16 to 17-year-olds have. You see, it's, it's no respect of age, is it? It's no respect of gender. gender. It's no respect, period. Again, it involves both genders. But what we're seeing is an increasing number of women that are addicted as well. And the saddest of all, even children as young as eight years of age are addicted to internet pornography. I'm not talking about simply looking at it, addicted to it. As early as eight years of age. And last, up to 18 years of age, only 3% of males and 17% of females have never seen internet pornography. That's a real minority, isn't it? Why do I bring this up? Well, I think it's something that we need to talk about. But where does it come from? Well, dial back all the way to Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, through the Old Testament, into the New Testament, the commands of the Lord haven't been heeded. The things that should have been destroyed have not been destroyed. And it's getting a grip 
on humankind throughout the world. The technology-captured society is exposed to the darkness of media at record levels. I mean, with the advent of handheld devices, smartphones, etc., I mean, a logarithmic increase in this kind of thing. Is there a way out? It may not seem like there's a way out, but there's always a way out. God said, destroy the altars. Break down the images. If people stop viewing, it's going to go away. But put them out of business. What do we need to do? We need to pray. We need to pray, and we need to pray some more. Because it's harmful. It's destructive. And it's polluting our land. It's polluting our minds. It's polluting our hearts. It's polluting our families. Why is sexual crime on the rise? Well, I think these statistics bear some light on that. Why is sex trafficking on the rise? These statistics bear witness of why. Why is pedophilia on the rise? I think it's clear. It's harmful. It's destructive. And family, God knows what's best. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that not only does he know best, but he also shares it with us so that we're able to be witnesses for Christ and his goodness and his righteousness and his salvation. I mean, none of these things that I described today are beyond God's ability to solve them. But he's looking for people that are willing to be willing participants to say, I'm going to stand up for what's right. And you know, sadly too, Pornography in the church, the statistics say it's really no different than what's outside the church, which is sad. But you know, we as God's people, we have the power of God's Spirit to turn away and repent. Lord, purify these vessels. Lord, we need you. We as a people need you. A church, we need you. As a nation, we need you. As families, we need you. And some of the things that are just so incredibly uncomfortable to talk about, this obviously being one of them, Lord, we need to talk about them so we can pray. We can pray and ask that you would have your, your way. Purify these vessels. Give us the strength to stand fully clad in your armor and prepared for battle. We thank you, Father, that you've given us your word of truth. Help us to live it out to your glory and to your praise and to your honor. And Lord, I know that all the things that we've even talked about tonight, Jesus, you died for them. You died for those that are participants of these things, Lord. And I pray that there would be repentance. There would be hearts that are changed. Hearts that would come clean before you and receive the strength that only you can provide. 
Lord, turn the tide, please. Please turn it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.